Welcome to today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger for Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. I'm glad to be with you today. My name is Rachel Thorson Mithelman. We have three stories on the front page. The first is Voters Have Their Say, Secor and Mason Advance to February 7th Vote for At-Large Fort Dodge City Council Seat. This is by Bill Shea. Megan Secor and Wayne Mason prevailed in Tuesday's Fort Dodge City Council special primary election and will face off in the February 7th vote to fill an unexpired term on the council. Secor led the field of eight candidates. She won 292 votes, or 30.4%, according to unofficial election results released by Webster County Auditor Doreen Pliner. That is really great and makes me feel very supported, she said Tuesday night. There are a lot of great candidates, and I'm glad I met them, she added. I'm really grateful to the people who supported me. I'm just really proud to be a member of our community. Mason won 157 votes, or 16.35%, according to those unofficial results. I'm happy that I'm moving on and get a chance to continue in the process, Mason said. He said he was disappointed in the voter turnout, which totaled 960 votes. I guess you have to expect that, he said. People aren't thinking about voting in the winter. The purpose of the special primary election was to trim the crowded field to two candidates for the general election. Tuesday's vote ended the council bids of the other six candidates. Those candidates were Richard Higgins, 99 votes, Jim Seward, 94 votes, and I need to turn the page, Eugene Newsom, 78 votes, Stephen Hansen, 77, Zach Moore, 73 votes, and Kyrie Borsay, 57 votes. Higgins, who launched the petition that forced the city council to call a special election, said Tuesday's vote was a victory for him, even though he will not advance to the February 7th general election. I had a victory anyway, he said. Thank you to the people who voted for me, he said. Even though I did not win, I feel like I achieved my main goal of giving voters in Fort Dodge the opportunity to choose who they wanted on the city council. Seward offered his best wishes to Secor and Manson. He said he hopes that their candidacies proceed for the best of Fort Dodge. He said he may run for council again sometime. Right now, the good Lord above knows that I have a full plate, and now is not the time for me to be on the city council, he said. Moore said he believes Mason and Secor are both good candidates. I think they're both prepared to give their best if they're elected, he said. However, he, <clears throat> he said he would be supporting Mason in the general election. Borsay, Hansen, and Newsom could not be reached late Tuesday for comment. Whoever wins the February 7th special general election will hold an at-large seat on the council through the rest of the year. They will be completing the term of former councilman Nevin Conrad, who resigned in October after being named the magistrate for Humboldt County. Andy Fritz, who had previously served on the council for 10 years, was appointed to complete the unexpired term. 
but the petition led by Higgins with the assistance of Newsom triggered the special election. The next story on the front page is Iowa Central Community College Board approves $14 million in bonds. Loans are to fund Storm Lake Learning Center and a renovation project. This is by Kelby Wingert. The Iowa Central Community College Board of Trustees approved the sale of two general obligation bonds totaling $14 million on Tuesday. The bulk of the loans are to fund the construction of a new Storm Lake Learning Center. Currently, Storm Lake students take classes in three separate locations, the AEA building, Storm Lake High School, and on the campus of Buena Vista University. Our goal is to get everyone into one central location, and this building will allow us to do that, said Stacy Menser, Vice President of Instruction at Iowa Central. The new Storm Lake Learning Center will be built at 323 West 20th Street, near the Iowa Central Industrial Training Center that opened in July of 2021. The board approved the sale of an $8 million tax-exempt general obligation bond, to Jannie Montgomery Scott of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at an interest rate of 2.99%. The tax-exempt general obligation bonds will be used for the Storm Lake Learning Center. The loan will have a maturity date of June of 2034. Five other financiers submitted bids for the sale, according to Maggie Berger, who is the um, Senior Vice President of Spear Financial, the college's financial advisors. Those interest rates varied from 3.09% to 3.39%. The $6 million taxable general obligations bond, also approved by the board on Tuesday, will provide cash flow for the Center for the Performing Arts and Decker Auditorium Renovation Project. Northland Securities, Inc. of Minneapolis was the winning bidder for that sale with an interest rate of 4.29% and maturity date of June of 2030. The other five bids ranged from 4.34% to 4.87%. The second bond is taxable because the Center for Performing Arts is a source of revenue for the college. The loans will be paid through the 20-25-cent plant fund tax levy approved by the voters in the college's service area in 2010. And again on the front page, one of the features taking center stage, it's called, um, that features students who are seniors in the Fort Dodge uh, schools. And today it's a young man named Dominic Berry. The title is Finding Comfort in Music. This is by Chris Johnson. Being involved in fine arts has given Dominic Berry the chance to break out of his shell. Before being involved at Fort Dodge Senior High School, Berry shied away from things. It's important for me to be involved because these programs have helped me a lot, Berry said. Before I joined them, I was really quiet and shy, and after participating, I am a lot more comfortable around people. 
As a Dodger, Barry is involved in marching band, symphonic band, jazz band, orchestra speech, and has been in the fall play. Outside of high school, Barry participates in 4-H. On the musical side, Barry plays the baritone saxophone and mallets in band and the violin in orchestra. It is hard being in both, as sometimes the class periods alternate days, Barry said, but I love both classes, and I can't imagine not being in them. The opportunity to share thoughts through a musical instrument is a different method of sharing. It allows you to express things without using words, and it also challenges your brain in a different way, Barry said. It's almost like speaking a different language. Band allows Barry the chance to build different relationships with his peers. I like the opportunities that marching band gives and the friendships it can offer, Barry said. I probably wouldn't have met some of my friends if I was not in the marching band. While not being involved in high school activities, Barry takes part in 4-H. In 4-H, I participate in the horse project and the hobby animal project, Barry said. Around the end of May, the horse project starts meeting, and we work on various skills like care and health of the horse, showmanship, and other basic skills leading up to the fair, where we have the option to show. While being involved in all the fine arts, making notes has helped Barry stay prepared. I'm definitely someone who forgets things quickly, so sometimes it can be difficult, Barry said. My main trick is to write things down as soon as possible and set reminders on my phone. Sharing his musical talents and being able to express himself is a big part of performing for Barry. I like the feeling I get when I step onto a stage, even when I can't tell if it's excitement or nerves, Barry said. I also enjoy just performing for other people, especially if it's something that I relate to a lot. While at Fort Dodge Senior High, Barry was part of the marching band trip to the Liberty Bowl. One of my favorite moments is performing at the Liberty Bowl in front of everybody on an instrument I just started on, Barry said. I was offered to switch instruments from percussion to saxophone and was asked to play saxophone on the trip. After high school, the Dodger senior plans on attending a four-year university to focus on music and possibly music education. Let's take a little moment to look at this date in history. This always comes from the Associated Press. Today is Wednesday, January 11th, the 11th day of 2023. There are 354 days left in the year. Today's highlight in history. On January 11th, 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt proclaimed the Grand Canyon National Monument which became a national park in 1919. Also on this date, in 1913, the first enclosed Cezanne-type automobile, a Hudson, went on display at the 13th National Automobile Show in New York. On this date, in 1927, the creation of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was proposed during a dinner of Hollywood luminaries at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. 
On this date in 1935, aviator Amelia Earhart began an 18-hour trip from Honolulu to Oakland, California, that made her the first person to fly solo across any part of the Pacific Ocean. On this date in 1964, U.S. Surgeon General Luther Terry issued Smoking and Health, a report that concluded that cigarette smoking contributes substantially to mortality from certain specific diseases and to the overall death rate. On this date in 1989, nine days before leaving the White House, President Ronald Reagan bade the nation farewell in a primetime address, saying of his eight years in office, quote, we meant to change a nation, and instead we changed a world, end quote. On this date in 2003, calling the death penalty process arbitrary and capricious and therefore immoral, Illinois Governor George Ryan commuted the sentences of 167 condemned inmates clearing his state's death row two days before leaving office. And in, on this date in 2010, Mark McGuire admitted to the Associated Press that he'd used steroids and human growth hormone when he broke baseball's home run record in 1998. Turning to state news, the governor gave her condition of the state address last evening, and the title of the article from the Associated Press in Des Moines is Reynolds Seeks State Funding for Private Schools. Every Iowa student would have the option of using more than $7,500 in state money annually to pay for private school under a plan Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds proposed Tuesday night in the annual Condition of the State speech. Reynolds, a Republican, has tried unsuccessfully twice before to enact a less expansive program of taxpayer-funded scholarships for private school. However, her more far-reaching program this year could finally be approved thanks to larger Republican majorities in both the House and Senate. She outlined the private school scholarships proposal during a speech in which she also called for a new effort to improve reading in poor-performing schools, supported offering grants to encourage fathers to be involved in their children's lives, proposed programs to benefit rural health care, and sought to limit awards given in lawsuits against health care systems. In describing her private school scholarship program, Reynolds said she supported public schools, but thought all children, not only those from wealthy families, should have the ability to attend private schools. The $7,598 she proposes making available to each student, the same amount the state allocates for a child in public schools, would initially be focused on lower-income children who want to attend a private school but after three years, it would be available regardless of income. Some families may want an education that conforms to their faith and moral convictions. Some kids may have ambitions and abilities that require a unique educational setting. Others may experience bullying or have special needs, Reynolds said. Regardless of the reason, every parent 
should have a choice of where to send their child, and that choice shouldn't be limited to families who can afford it. Before offering her agenda for the upcoming legislative session, which began Monday, Reynolds ticked through several programs approved since she became governor in 2017, including changes to collective bargaining rules for public employees, steep tax cuts, and her push to require that school districts offer classroom learning during the COVID-19 pandemic. Repeatedly, Reynolds said, her political opponents, the media and so-called experts, predicted catastrophe if such proposals were approved. But she argued the state had emerged stronger because of those actions. The pundits said we were wrong. The experts condemned us, and they underestimated our resolve, Reynolds said. But none of that matters. It doesn't matter because the people of Iowa were with us. The story is accompanied by a photograph of the governor entering the Iowa House of Representatives for the speech. Soaring U.S. egg prices put pressure on consumers and businesses. This from the Associated Press in Omaha. Chickens may not be able to fly very far, but the price of eggs is soaring. A lingering bird flu outbreak combined with soaring feed, fuel, and labor costs has led to U.S. egg prices more than doubling over the past year and hatched a lot of sticker shock on grocery aisles. The national average price for a dozen eggs hit $3.59 in November, up from $1.72 a year earlier, according to the latest government data. That's putting stress on consumer budgets and the bottom lines of restaurants, bakeries, and other food producers that rely heavily on eggs. Grocery prices that were up 12% in November are driving inflation higher, even though the overall pace of price increases slowed a bit through the fall as gas prices eased. But egg prices are up significantly more than other foods, even more than chicken or turkey, because egg farmers were hit harder by the bird flu. More than 43 million of the 58 million birds slaughtered over the past year to control the virus had been egg-laying chickens, including some farms with more than a million birds apiece in major egg-producing states like Iowa. Everyone who approaches the egg case in a Hy-Vee grocery store in Omaha has a sour face, said shopper Nancy Stom. But even with the cost increases, eggs remain relatively cheap compared to the price of other proteins like chicken or beef, with a pound of chicken breast going for $4.42 on average in November and a pound of ground beef selling for $4.85, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's still an inexpensive meal, Stom said. But the 70-year-old said that at these prices, she'll watch her eggs more closely in the fridge and try not to let them go bad before they get used. If prices remain this high, Kelly Fisher said she will start thinking more seriously about building a backyard chicken coop in Chicago because everyone in her family eats eggs. We with neighbors, are contemplating building a chicken coop behind our houses, so eventually I hope not to buy them and have my own eggs, and I think the cost comes into that somewhat, 
the 46-year-old public school teacher said. While shopping at Harvest Time Foods on Omaha's north side, for me, it's more of the environmental impact and trying to purchase locally. In some places, it can even be hard to find eggs on the shelves, but egg supplies overall are holding up because the total flock is only down about 5% from around its normal size of around 320 million hens. Farmers have been working to replace their flocks as soon as they can after an outbreak. Jacob Werner, who is age 18, said he tries to find the cheapest eggs he can because he eats five or six of them a day while he's trying to gain weight and build muscle. For a while, I just stopped eating eggs as they got more expensive, but since they're my favorite food, I came back to them in the end, said Werner, who lives in Chicago. So I think for like a few months, I just stopped eating eggs, waited for the price to come down. It never did, so now I'm buying again. Purdue University agricultural economist Jason Lusk said he believes the bird flu outbreak is the biggest driver in the price increases. Unlike past years, the virus lingered throughout the summer and made a resurgence last fall infecting egg and poultry farms. Bird flu is not the only factor, but in my view, it's the main driver of what we're experiencing at the moment, Lusk said. But the president and CEO of the American Egg Board trade group, Emily Metz, said she believes all the cost increases farmers have faced in the past year were a bigger factor in the price increases than bird flu. When you're looking at fuel costs go up and you're looking at feed costs go up as much as 60%, labor costs, packaging costs, all of that, Those are much, much bigger factors than bird flu, for sure, Metz said. Jada Thompson, a University of Arkansas agricultural economist, said there may be some relief coming in egg prices in the next couple months because egg farmers have been steadily replacing their flocks lost to bird flu last year, and demand will ease a bit now that people are done with their holiday baking. But she said bird flu remains a wild card that could still drive prices higher if there are more sizable outbreaks at egg farms. Farmers are doing all they can to limit the spread, but the disease is easily spread by migrating wild birds, and the virus can be picked up on clothing or vehicles. But there are some things that are just outside of our control, Thompson said. You can't control nature sometimes. Food producers and restaurants are hurting because it's hard to find a good substitute for eggs in their recipes. Any decrease in egg prices would be welcome at Patty Stobaugh's two restaurants and two bakeries in Conway and Russellville, Arkansas, because all of her ingredients and supplies are more expensive these days. For some of her baked goods, Stobaugh has switched to a frozen egg product that's not quite as pricey, but she's still buying eggs for all the breakfasts she serves. A case of 15 dozen eggs has gone from $36 to $86 over the last year. But flour, butter, chicken, and everything else she buys is also more expensive. Stobaugh said that has her hyper-vigilant about every little item. So there's the latest on eggs. Also in today's paper, 
Unity Point Health and Trinity Regional Medical Center nurse receives the DAISY Award. Patty Grossnickel, RN, Coordinator of Cancer Care in Oncology Services, received the DAISY Award at Unity Point Health, Trinity Regional Medical Center. She was nominated for the award by a coworker who is also a patient in the cancer center. Her nomination reads, quote, I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with Patty at Unity Point Health. Patty is the most compassionate and dedicated nurse, and I've seen firsthand the positive impact she has on patients. In July of 2022, I got to experience firsthand what an incredible nurse Patty was when I was diagnosed with and quickly began treatment for breast cancer. Patty has been by my side since day one, from my surgical consult to how my port should feel when accessed. Patty makes sure my questions are answered and ensures I feel comfortable throughout the treatment. Patty is knowledgeable and kind. She is compassionate and pours her heart into her patients. Thank you, Patty, for helping me through one of my toughest seasons of life yet. End quote. Grossnickel was honored during a celebration with her family and team members. She received a certificate, pin, and a sculpture. DAISY is an acronym for Diseases Attacking the Immune System. The DAISY Foundation was formed in January of 2000 by the family of J. Patrick Barnes, who died at age 33 from complications of an autoimmune disease. His family wanted to say thank you to nurses everywhere by establishing a recognition program, the DAISY Award for Extraordinary Nurses, to honor the superhuman work nurses do every day at the bedside. The DAISY Award is a merit-based award that honors clinical skill, leadership, strong patient care, and compassion. And then turning to um, a couple of news briefs as we end this first half of our show, GOP requests Intel Damage Assessment. This is from the Associated Press in Washington. The top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee has requested that the U.S. intelligence community conduct a damage assessment of potentially classified documents found in the Washington office space of President Joe Biden's former institute. Representative Mike Turner sent the request Tuesday to Director of National Intelligence Averill Haynes, saying that Biden's retention of the documents put him in potential violation of laws protecting national security, including the Espionage Act and Presidential Records Act. Irrespective of a federal review, the revelation that Biden potentially mishandled classified or presidential records could prove to be a political headache for the president, who called former President Trump's decision to keep hundreds of such records at his private club in Florida irresponsible. Biden ignored shouted questions about the matter Tuesday during a bilateral meeting with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Mexico. Turner's request came a day after the White House confirmed that the Department of Justice was reviewing a small number of documents with classified markings. The documents were discovered as Biden's personal attorneys were clearing out the offices of the Penn-Biden Center, where the president kept an office, 
after he left the vice presidency in 2017, until shortly before he launched his presidential campaign in 2019, the White House said. And then this short article from Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Haiti awoke Tuesday stripped of its last democratically elected institution, this time its Senate, an alarming development that solidifies what some call a de facto dictatorship nominally in charge of a country racked by gang violence. While only 10 senators had been symbolically representing the nation's 11 million people in recent years because Haiti had failed to hold legislative elections since October of 2019, their terms expired overnight, leaving Haiti without a single lawmaker in its House or Senate amid a spiraling political crisis. Organized crime groups have been running virtually unchecked since the July 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moise, who himself had been ruling by decree. It's a very grim situation, said Alex Dupai, a Haitian-born sociologist at Wesleyan University, one of the worst crises that Haiti has had since the Duvalier dictatorship. The bloody regime of Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier, who fled the country in 1986, marked the last time Haiti lacked elected officials. So you're listening to the Fort Dodge Messenger on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. My name is Rachel Thorson Mithelman, and I'm glad to be your reader today. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, feel free to give us a call at 515-243-6833. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. The first obituary in today's paper is for Marcus Gully. Marcus Gully, age 46, of Fort Dodge, died January 4, 2023, at his home. Funeral will be 1 p.m. Friday, January 13th, at Lauferswiler Funeral Home. Visitation will be from 11 till 1 Friday at the funeral home. Marcus, or Jojo, was born December 15, 1976, in Fort Dodge. Jojo attended Fort Dodge schools, where he later received his GED. Jojo enjoyed playing basketball and could outrun you in a race, believe it or not. He enjoyed spending time with his family and friends. Jojo was survived by his sons, Brian Grady of Fort Dodge, Bradley, or Brady Grady of Ames, Jamarcus Gully of Ankeny, daughters Marissa Hauser of Fort Dodge, Ladija Gully of Ankeny, Father Robert Presswood, Sr. of Fort Dodge, brothers Anthony, spouse Nikki Gully of Ankeny, Robert Presswood of Des Moines, Brad, spouse Sherry Gully, Damon Gully, Cornelius Gully of Fort Dodge, sisters Felicia Gully of Des Moines, Natasha Gully, Detria Gully of Cedar Rapids, and a host of aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, and cousins. 
He was preceded in death by his mother, Shirley Ann Gully, sister Latoya Gully, infant sister, maternal grandparents Earl and Irene Gully, and paternal grandparents Jasper and Merdine Presswood. Jojo was a natural-born hustler and lover. He had the biggest heart and always had a positive attitude. Everyone that he crossed paths with, he made smile. He was tough on the outside and soft on the inside. Memorials may be left to the discretion of the family. The next obituary in today's paper is for Thomas or Mike McNally. Thomas, or Mike McNally, age 77 of Fort Dodge, passed away following a short illness on Monday, January 9th at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home. A celebration of Mike's life will be Monday, January 16th from 4 to 6 p.m. at Lawfersweiler Funeral Home. Mike is survived by his wife, Denise, daughters Sherry Schwint and husband Brian of the Quad Cities, Lynn Bellows and her husband, John of Pocahontas, daughter-in-law, Inuen Hanrahan of Florida, 10 grandchildren, and brother Bill McNally and wife Donna of Fort Dodge, brother-in-law, Jay, spouse Tracy Collins, sisters-in-law, Mary, spouse Marlon Gardelin, Diane, spouse Bill Blumker, Kathy, spouse Jim Kesterson, Maureen, spouse Denny Crimmins, a host of nieces, nephews, and cousins. He was preceded in death by his father, Thomas Helferick, mom and dad, Emily Hanch, and Thomas McNally, son, Timothy Michael McNally, and stepson, Craig Hanrahan, mother and father-in-law, Gloria, and Richard Collins. Thomas Michael McNally was born August 16th, 1945. In Fort Dodge, he is a 1963 graduate of Fort Dodge Senior High School. He first worked for IBP and then for Mid-American Energy until his retirement in 2004. On September 11th, 1987, Mike was united in marriage to Denise Collins Hanrahan. He loved his yearly trips to Mexico with his wife, Denise, where he got to see and spend time with his beach bum friends. He was an avid Kansas City Chiefs fan. Mike had fun in retirement. He enjoyed golfing with the geezer guys at Willow Ridge Golf Course and listening to his blues collection. Memorials may be left to the discretion of the family. The next obituary, Joan Featherman Reed, age 91, passed away peacefully on December 19th at Friendship Haven in Fort Dodge. Her funeral service will be held at Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services on Monday, January 16th. Visitation will be from 10 to 11, followed by the service at 11, with Pastor Jennifer Owens officiating. Burial will be at North Lawn Cemetery immediately following the service. Joan was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, on March 28, 1931, to Oscar and Agnes Featherman. She attended Delton, Pennsylvania High School, Keystone Junior College, and Columbia University, where she was awarded her degree with honors in physical therapy. It was the era of the polio epidemic. 
She worked at the DuPont Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware, and traveled to the hot spots for the National Polio Foundation. Along the way, she met her future husband, Wendell J. Reed, of Fort Dodge. They were married in September of 1955. After retiring to Florida for close to 30 years, Joan and Wendell moved to Friendship Haven in February of 2013. Wendell predeceased Joan on October 31, 2013. Joan is survived by her brothers Donald, spouse Susan Featherman of Sarasota, Florida, and Richard, spouse Alice Featherman of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Brothers-in-law, Dr. James, spouse Ruth Reed, and Patrick, spouse Judy Reed of Fort Dodge, Iowa, as well as numerous nieces and nephews. Joan had a wonderful life. She sang as a member of the Sweet Adelines and enjoyed sports, bridge with her many friends, and golf in her retirement life. Joan was a member of the Dalton, Pennsylvania Methodist Church. Memorial gifts may be sent to Friendship Haven at 420 Kenyon Road in Fort Dodge, 50501. Then there are also four short death notices in the paper. Harold McLeod, age 85, of Portland, Oregon, formerly of Otho and Fort Dodge, passed away on January 4, 2022. He was preceded in death by his wife, Mary. He is survived by two children, Scott and Lisa, of Portland, Oregon. Mabel H. Schrader, this from Eagle Grove. Mabel Schrader, age 98, of Eagle Grove, passed away Friday, December 30th. Visitation is 4 to 6 p.m. Sunday, January 15th. Ewing Funeral Home in Belmont. Robert F. or Bud McCarville, age 98, of Fort Dodge and formerly of Moreland, died Tuesday, January 10th at the Marion Home. Services are pending with Lawfersweiler Funeral Home. And then funeral services for Kathy Schmidt, age 65, of Sherdan, Iowa, are 10.30 a.m., Wednesday, January 11th, at St. Columcal Catholic Church in Sherdan, Iowa. That concludes today's obituaries. Next, we'll turn to the opinion page. The Messenger editorial today is Flu Shots Provide Potentially Life-Saving Protection. Just about everyone has called in sick at some point, saying they had the flu when they were sniffling, sneezing, maybe running a fever, and generally feeling lousy. Those symptoms definitely add up to an illness, but the problem is not really the flu. Influenza, as it is properly known, is much, much worse. According to the Iowa Department of Public Health, influenza is caused by viruses that infect the respiratory tract. Influenza and pneumonia are among the top 10 causes of death in the state. Fortunately, there is a way to prevent influenza. A yearly vaccine can protect a person from the deadly disease. Yes, getting a shot hurts. And yes, an influenza vaccine can leave a person with a sore arm for a day or two. But that seems like a small price to pay for protection against a disease that can make a person very ill and even kill them. 
getting an influenza vaccine is even more important now because of COVID-19. With yet another respiratory disease on the loose, it just makes sense to be protected. But despite the proven protective powers of a flu shot, not everyone gets one. Public health officials would like to see 90% of those who are able to receive a flu shot actually get one. Flu shots are readily available at doctors' offices, pharmacies, and the Webster County Public Health Department. We encourage everyone to get a flu shot to protect not only themselves, but their families, friends, and co-workers from this preventable disease. And then the editorial is from Paul Pate, who is Iowa's Secretary of State. It's titled, Let's Put an End to Human Trafficking. There is a form of slavery taking place in Iowa right now. It's called human trafficking, and it occurs when men, women, or children are forced to perform labor services or sexual acts. This horrific crime affects thousands of people across the U.S., and it can happen to anyone. The state of Iowa is taking steps to raise awareness about human trafficking and put an end to this danger, but we need your help. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. This is an opportune time for Iowans to learn how to recognize the signs of human trafficking, stand with survivors, and inform them of available resources. Human trafficking is a crime that can occur behind closed doors, in plain sight, at a workplace, and in any area of our country. One year ago, I announced the launch of a new initiative to bring Iowa's business community together to fight back. It's called Iowa Business Against Iowa Businesses Against Trafficking, or IBAT, and our goal is to build a statewide army in Iowa. Since its launch, more than 600 businesses and organizations have taken up the cause. The genesis of IBAT came in April of 2021, while I was attending a Lunch and Learn in my hometown of Cedar Rapids. Participants at the event detailed some of the horrors victims endure. endure. There was also discussion about a human tra- trafficking attempt that was thwarted by an alert employee at the Eastern Iowa Airport in Cedar Rapids. The employee had undergone a human trafficking awareness training and recognized the signs. I quickly realized there was an opportunity to bring this kind of awareness statewide to address this form of modern-day slavery. If Iowa's business community comes together, we can accomplish the goal of ending human trafficking in our state. Whether it's a large corporation or a mom-and-pop store on Main Street with one employee, Every business can join, and every business can make a difference. Something as simple as handing out a brochure or making a social media post can make a difference. It can create a ripple effect across the state. My office, the Iowa Legislature, the Iowa Department of Public Safety's Office to Combat Human Trafficking, and the Iowa Department of Transportation's Motor Vehicle Enforcement are all working toward the same goal to make Iowa a trafficking-free state, but we need your help. There are several ways Iowans can make a difference. If you're a business owner or manager, join IBAT. If you want to learn more on how to recognize the signs of trafficking, you can view free online training at 
S-T-O-P-H-T-I-O-W-A.org. If you want to show your support for survivors and raise awareness, today is Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Help us raise awareness and join thousands of people across this United States by wearing blue that day and posting a picture on social media using hashtag Human Trafficking Awareness Day and hashtag IWASAH. We can all make a difference. Every added voice helps. Learn something, do something. Together, let's put an end to human trafficking. Again, that is from Paul Pate, who is Iowa's Secretary of State. And now we'll turn to sports. Uh, first article about Fort Dodge girls basketball, all smiles. Dodger girls end skid and throttle scarlets. This by Dana Becker. The Fort Dodge girls got just what they needed here Tuesday night in their return home. Laney Mayle scored 19 points with 8 rebounds. L.J. Mayle had 14 with 7, and Mackenzie McElrath added 12 with 7 steals as the Dodgers rolled past Des Moines East 62-9. to It felt good to be back at home and to get a win, Fort Dodge Senior High head coach Scott Messerly said. It's been a while here between tough road games and difficult losses. I thought the girls came out and really executed well. Once the score gets out of hand like it did, it can be easy to sort of lose focus, but we played well throughout and really got some good minutes out of our bench. Fort Dodge had dropped four in a row with all of them coming on the road. This was the first home game since December, since a December 9th win over Waterloo East. The excitement of being inside the Dodger gym showed as they, McElrath and the Mayles sisters, combined for all 20 first-quarter points. Fort Dodge led 20-0 after one and 38-2 at the half over the Scarlets. I thought Mackenzie played a great game, Messerly said. She continues to gain confidence in her shot and really found good looks. Laney just comes out and produces each and every single night, and LJ continues to grow. Mia McCaleb did a nice job running the offense, and Pat Payteen Hively played well in the second half. Hively scored all eight of her points after the break while adding five rebounds and five steals. Ashlyn Wills came off the bench to score three points with five boards and four steals. East finally got on the board in the second on a bucket by Buani Simba, who led the team with five points. Only two other players scored for the Scarlets as they made just three field goals. Fort Dodge closes out the week on Thursday when they host number 13, Des Moines North. And the Dodgers boys, Dodger boys, can't catch East. This by Eric Pratt. A spirited second-half comeback provided Fort Dodge boys head coach Willie Williams with a sliver of optimism after Tuesday night's game against Des Moines East. The tipping point? needing that kind of rally in the first place. The Dodgers showed a sense of urgency late that Williams has been pleading for in recent weeks. A double-digit deficit was too much to overcome in the end, though, as Fort Dodge dropped 56-46 decision to the Scarlets. Playing their first home contest in over a month, 
The Dodgers, who are 1-7 overall, slumbered through a lackluster first half and trailed by 15 points at intermission. Fort Dodge did manage to trim the deficit to four with two minutes and 30 seconds remaining in regulation, but East, who is four and six, scored the final six points, all but one by six-foot-six junior and former Dodger middle schooler Tyrone Wright to seal the Iowa Alliance Conference crossover victory. I thought our second half, especially that third quarter, was all about fight and toughness. That's what we need more of, Williams said but you can't get down by that many points in this situation on your home court. You can't. You just can't. I'm proud of our guys for putting everything they had into the last two quarters, but we need that in all four quarters if we want to get on the winning side of these games. Cade Westerhoff had the first three baskets of the third quarter, and Ty Adams and a Ty Adams three-pointer had Fort Dodge within 41-34 in the final minute of the period. A traditional three-point play by Javon Jondal got the Dodgers within six points to open the fourth, and a Westerhoff triple made it 50-46 to give the home squad a sign of further hope. Wright was simply too much to handle on the low blocks the rest of the way, however. After a relatively quiet first half, Wright went to work, scoring 10 of his 16 points in the closing eight minutes. The Scarlet's three-year starter attended school in Fort Dodge through fifth grade before moving to Des Moines. He is averaging over 12 points and nearly nine rebounds this season for East, which included a 28.23 rebound performance in a victory over Waterloo East last month. Jondal had 18 points for the Dodgers with Westerhoff, a sophomore, adding all 14 of his points in the second half. Senior Kyron Wilson grabbed eight rebounds and recorded five steals. Sophomore Desmond Campbell paced the Scarlets with 18 points. Ja'Kerry Patton and Wright contributed 16 each. Kyron and junior Ryan Daniel gave us good minutes on the low blocks defensively and on the boards, Williams said. They were working hard. Javon and Cade were offensive spark and freshman Tyrell Mosley came off the bench and contributed in a positive way. The big thing is just getting on the same page. We have to do a better job of trusting each other and sharing the basketball to turn good looks into better ones. Again, we were better about that in the second half, but if you only show up for different segments or stretches of a game, you won't be successful. It has to be a full 32 minutes. The Dodgers are off until Monday when they visit 10th-ranked Marshalltown for a makeup tilt. Fort Dodge's next home contest is against Ames next Friday. Looking to college basketball, six straight for the Cyclones. Number 14 Iowa State still is unbeaten in Big 12 play. This is by Andrew Logue. Gabe Kulsher scored a season-high 25 points as number 14 Iowa State rolled past Texas Tech 84-50 on Tuesday night. Culture made five of six shots from three-point range and was 10 of 14 overall as the Cyclones, who are 13-2 and and 4-0 and in the Big 12, coasted to their sixth straight win. When you work how he works, it comes around, Iowa State coach T.J. Otzelberger said. He's earned that confidence. 
Jaron Holmes added 15 points for the Cyclones. Caleb Grill finished with 14 after hitting four of his first six three-pointers. Iowa State finished 12 of 22 from behind the arc. We're at a really high peak right now, Kulsher said. Everyone is just gelling together. Devon Harmon led Tech, which is 10 and 6 and 0 and 4 in the Big 12, with 14 points. The Red Raiders shot 36.5%. This is really good news for us because we've been kind of wallowing around in mediocrity for a while, Tech coach Mark Adams said. This is a wake-up call. Grill made two three-pointers as Iowa State built a 14-8 lead. Kulsher added another to extend the margin to 17-10. A three-pointer from Holmes made the score 34-20. The Cyclones hit seven of 13 shots from behind the arc in the first half, including Kulsher's three-pointer from the corner as time expired. Our guys are really dialed in, Otzelberger said. Their focus and their preparation was good. It felt like regardless of who we put in there, they were ready for the job. Tech struggled early, committing four turnovers in the first two and a half minutes and making just one of its first ten attempts from three-point range. The Red Raiders shot just 34.8% overall in the first half. Iowa State, which began the season unranked, is 4-0 in Big 12 play for the first time since the 1999-2000 season. The Cyclones also improved to 9-0 at home. Texas Tech fell to 0-4 against ranked teams this season. And news from the Iowa State women's basketball program, Suarez out for the year. Iowa State women's basketball forward and center Stephanie Suarez will miss the remainder of the season, Iowa State announced Monday night. Suarez tore the ACL in her left knee early in the Cyclones contest at Oklahoma on Sunday. As a coach, there's nothing nothing worse than to have a player sustain an injury that ends their season, head coach Bill Fennelly said. We are heartbroken for Steph. I am proud of her and the major impact that she has made on our program and Iowa State University. This was not how I expected my season to end, but I am thankful for the opportunities I have gotten at Iowa State, Soros said. I could not have done this without the support of my teammates, coaches, doctors, and athletic training staff, and the fans at Hilton Coliseum. I know God gives me strength to get through this challenge in my life, I look forward to being there for my teammates and helping them achieve our goals and make the most of this special season. The senior from San Paulo, Brazil, Suarez joined the Cyclones this past summer after four years at the Masters University at the NAIA level. In 13 games for ISU, she averaged 14.4 points, 9.9 rebounds, and three blocks per game. Suarez, who had eight double-doubles on the season, was shooting 54.4% from the field. The highlights from her season included a season opening 15 points and 14 rebounds against Cleveland State on November 7th, 23 points and 11 rebounds and a career-best six blocks against Michigan State at the Phil Knight Invitational on November 24th, and the sixth 20-rebound game in ISU history on January 4th, 
against West Virginia. And we'll finish with this brief article. Purdy and the 49ers soar into the playoffs. San Francisco has reeled off 10 consecutive victories. This from Josh Dubow. The offense is putting up more than 30 points each week with ease. The defense is stingy and generating turnovers. The San Francisco 49ers head into the postseason on a 10-game winning streak. Winning streak after beating the Arizona Cardinals 38-13 to on Sunday and are peaking at the right time of the season. The 49ers, who are 13-4, and will start the postseason at home against NFC West rival Seattle, who is 9-8, and on Saturday and will get to stay there at least another week if they win because they secured the number two seed in the NFC. And there's a little bit more to this article. There it is. After making it to the Super Bowl in the 2019 season and the NFC title game last season, the Niners are poised for another possible run thanks to a high-powered offense led by rookie third-string quarterback Brock Purdy and a dominant defense. Generating takeaways, the Niners had four more takeaways on Sunday and finished the regular season tied for second in the NFL with 30 on the season. Tashawn Gibson had two of San Francisco's three INTs, and the 49ers finished tied for the NFL lead with Pittsburgh with 20 on the season. San Francisco has generated multiple takeaways in seven of the past eight games. And that brings us to the close of today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. I've been your reader. My name is Rachel Thorson Mithelman. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>